fear and frustration as families struggle to feed their hungry babies. Why is there a formula shortage? It's not COVID shipping delays. Capitalism works. Other supermarket shelves are filled. Plus, other countries have no shortage. Here are shelves in Mexico, Sweden, France. The problem, as usual, is really the law itself. Trade specialist Scott Linsicum calls this a government-caused shortage. You won't hear that from most media. They cover the business that announced a problem. Abbott Nutrition has issued a voluntary recall for powdered baby formula. We are here because a company was not able to guarantee that its plant was safe, and that plant has shut down. But normally, one factory closure doesn't cause massive shortages. In a free market, you would expect to be able to fill in the gaps left by Abbott. But America's baby formula market is not a free market. The dairy industry gives millions to politicians. The dairy industry in the United States has a really long history of lobbying the government and achieving protection. That's why it's so hard to bring foreign formula here. Dairy industry lobbyists got Congress to slap fat tariffs on formula from overseas. There was a gray market where people were getting around these rules. American parents enlisted third-party sellers to obtain European infant formula. Boxes of formula arrived, but customs wouldn't let American parents have it. Customs, uh, at the FDA's direction, has been seizing European baby formula shipments at the border, uh, much like a drug seizure. They even brag about it. U.S. Customs and Border Protection sees nearly $162,000 worth of mislabeled baby formula. Customs then destroys the formula. Some are banned even if the ingredients are just listed in the wrong order. If you have the wrong scooper, banned. If you uh, don't list a certain ingredient that the FDA demands, you're banned. Even if a third-party retailer provides you with the English translation, it's banned. I would think the government now would suspend those rules. Certainly should, but milk. the dairy industry lobbied very hard for these rules that have provided them uh, essentially a captive market. They're not going to give that up easily. So what's our government doing now? Sending military planes to pick up formula in Germany. Operation Fly Formula, the administration calls it. But they pick up only the few bottles made in FDA-approved facilities. And then they waste time inspecting it on arrival. They say they just want to make sure the formula is safe. I think a legitimate concern if it were infant formula coming from perhaps China. But the fact is that the largest producer and exporter of infant formula is in Europe. Maybe the European product isn't as safe. It is safe. It's safe for European babies. It's exported all over the world. What we really need is a regime that simply says, if it's approved abroad, it's approved here. Parents should be able to decide for themselves. So why don't we have that? The FDA is extremely jealous of its regulatory authority. If they haven't approved it, it's banned. Recently, the FDA said, we'll make a rare exception for one British company. But what took so long? We always want to be as fast as we can possibly be while also being um, diligent. The commissioner even sounds sleepy. We have to get this right. Finally, one other big government-created reason for the shortage. Unfortunately, um, we don't really have a diverse supplier, supplier base in the United States because of years and years of U.S. government intervention in the domestic 
baby formula market via a program called WIC. No more checks. Using WIC is easier than ever. WIC, a food stamp-like program for women, infants, and children, has grown so much, it now buys half the baby formula in America. If your baby needs formula, we will help keep her fed. Abbott Laboratories grabbed most of that market by offering the government the lowest price. But that made the shortage worse when... Abbott Laboratories issued a recall for its baby formula. It's going to take weeks for Abbott to get manufacturing up and running again because they're going to need FDA clearance to do so. The time for fixing all of this was months before the crisis hit. Because now that we have a highly concentrated domestic market, now that we have a tariff and regulatory wall around the country, you simply can't snap your fingers and expect supply to materialize overnight. We have to move with caution as well as speed. So much of what government does seems to be trying to fix things government messed up in the first place. Very much so. And that's one of the most frustrating things we're seeing. Especially with the media and politicians saying. The real problem, as usual, is corporate power run amok. Corporate greed. There might be a need for indictment. The usual suspects are blaming capitalism and blading greedy corporations. And it's clearly uh, government policy that's causing the biggest problems. Hope you enjoyed this video. Please click this button. That'll help us make more. Planning on flying somewhere this summer? Good luck. More cancellations are possible in the days ahead. JetBlue Airways says it's trimming flights by 10% because of staffing issues. Delays and cancellations have spiked because the country faces... A growing pilot shortage. A pilot shortage? A shortage of more than 12,000 pilots. That's surprising. Flying's a popular job. You know you were born to be a pilot. Look, you're flying. So why aren't there enough pilots? because government got involved. Congress passed the Airline Safety and Federal Aviation Administration Extension Act. The Safety and Federal Aviation Administration Act was passed because of this plane crash. Significant ice buildup on the windshield and on the front edge of the wings. Moments later, this from the tower. This aircraft was five miles out, and all of a sudden we have no response to that aircraft. The plane crashed into a house near Buffalo. All 49 people on board and one in the house were killed. Pilot error was said to be the cause. So Congress demanded that all pilots must get much more flight time before they are hired. Instead of 250 hours, now they must get 1,500 hours. That never made any sense. Pilot Tracy Price points out that requiring 1,500 hours wouldn't have stopped the Buffalo crash. The pilots who crashed that plane, they had many more hours. Yeah, absolutely. The pilot had more than 3,000 hours and the co-pilot more than 2,000. If they were unqualified, it was for other reasons. The pilot had failed some flying tests and fatigue may have been a factor, but that didn't matter to the politicians. Flight uh, 3407 taught us that we need to improve pilot training. But requiring more pre-training flight time doesn't improve that. 250 hours to 1,500 hours is quite a jump. That's a huge jump. It had the effect of pulling up the ladder. Suddenly, fewer people wanted to be pilots. 
few had the time or money to get 1,500 hours in the air before they could even apply. The number of certified pilots fell even as flight demand increased. Of course, the pilot union liked that. The unions like it because it creates fewer applicants. And fewer applicants means higher pay. This rule is good for you. Great for me. Yeah. For professional pilots, it's been wonderful. If you believe in freedom, though, it's a bit of an issue. The union blamed the shortage of pilots on poor pay at regional airlines. Some of these regional airlines were paying pilots as little as $21,000 a year. And there was no shortage of applicants. There were plenty of people who were willing to take fairly low pay and live with roommates for a year or two to gain that really valuable jet experience. At the same moment, the left engine fails. Today, pilots get most of their training in simulators like this one. This is far more than a sophisticated video game. The simulators give them experience much more useful than 1,500 unsupervised hours of hobby flying. Oh my gosh, this is so fun. These hours meet the regulation, but don't really prepare pilots to fly commercial airliners. One airline put it this way. We waste a lot of time and training breaking bad habits pilots acquire while trying to quickly get to 1,500 hours. The Regional Airline Association says pilots with 1,500 prior hours are sometimes less capable. We are seeing negative unintended consequences from the 1,500 hours because flight time does not equal experience. But the politicians ignored her. As usual, they claimed their regulations worked. There have been nearly eight years of no fatal commercial crashes on domestic U.S. airlines. Now it's been 13 years, but even before the new regulation, flying was safer than driving, biking, taking a bus or a train. Safer than any mode of conveyance ever, including walking. Flying is unbelievably safe, but politicians always seem to think we need more and more regulations and we must further strengthen flight safety measures. So expect more flight delays this summer. I spend a lot of more time than I want to making announcements to people apologizing for being late. We do apologize for the delay in our service. We should be looking for ways to expand the availability of airline travel to more people so that more people can take advantage of this amazingly safe way for, to get from A to B. Thanks for watching. If you enjoy these videos, remember, subscribe and hit the notification bell to make sure you get the next one. Congratulations, graduates. You now have a degree in psychology, philosophy, sociology, feminist studies, pre-med, or dozens of other possible subjects. As you step off the podium with your degree in hand, here's a question for you. Did you learn anything about money? Did you learn anything about debt, taxes, or why the rich keep getting richer? As you enter the real world, do you realize your bankers will not ask you for your college degree or your grade point average? Bankers want to see your financial statement, not your report card. You know how to read textbooks. You're highly literate people. But are you financially literate? Do you know how to read a financial statement? 
I learned more playing Monopoly than I ever did in school. After all your hours in the classroom, how high is your financial IQ? I'm guessing that for most of you, the answer is, I don't know. Some of you will reply, I don't care. On graduation day, all you may care about is making a difference in the world. But if you don't care about money, money won't care about you. And you'll probably wind up in your parents' basement. In the real world, money is always a problem. If you don't have money, that is a problem. I was born and raised in Hawaii, and I'm best known for Rich Dad, Poor Dad, the most popular book about financial education ever published. My poor dad was my real dad, my biological father, a very smart, highly educated man, a PhD, and the head of education for the state of Hawaii. But he knew little, if anything, about money. My rich dad was the father of my best friend. Rich dad never went to high school, much less college. When he was 13 years old, his father died, and he had to take over the family business. Rich dad got his real-life education in the real world of business. Although he lacked a formal academic education, he understood the world of money and became a rich man. Although my poor dad was highly educated, he struggled with money all his life and ultimately died a poor man. Like most people, my poor dad thought the way to become financially secure <laughs> was simply to earn more money. So he would work harder, get promoted, and get a pay raise. He got plenty of raises, but he didn't get any richer. To the graduating class, I pass on my poor dad's big mistake. Although a highly educated man, a PhD who attended Stanford, University of Chicago, and Northwestern, poor dad was financially illiterate. Poor dad did not know the difference between assets and liabilities. Poor dad always called our family home an asset. He also said our home is our biggest investment. Rich Dad said, your dad may be a PhD, but he does not know his house is not an asset. His house is a liability. Assets put money in your pocket, whether you work or not. Liabilities take money from your pocket, whether you work or not. My poor dad kept calling liabilities assets. That's why he was poor. The rich acquire assets. The poor and middle class acquire liabilities they think are assets. Come to terms with this concept and you will start your journey towards financial freedom. Reject it and you'll be like my poor dad. With that kind of future staring you in the face, it's no mystery why so many of your contemporaries favor socialism over free market capitalism. Cancel all student debt. Health care is a human right. Tax the rich. These sentiments have a lot of appeal. Why? Because they teach you to blame others for your money problems. You're a victim of the capitalist system. And there's an easy fix. Just take money from those who have it and give it to those who don't. That's what my poor dad believed. Here's the irony. It's not the rich who are obsessed with money. It's the poor and middle class. Because... They never have enough of it. My real education began after I left school. 
it's time to begin yours. I leave you with words of wisdom from my rich dad. You never have true freedom until you have financial freedom. I'm Robert Kiyosaki, author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation. Question, why would a teacher who loves teaching quit her job? Answer, when her job is no longer about teaching. For 15 years, I taught ESL, English as a Second Language, to middle and high school students. The last five years were at public schools in Salinas, California. Salinas has suffered for a long time with a gang problem. Students are just as likely to fall victim to the temptations of gang life as they are to graduate from high school. If that sounds like a challenge, it was exactly the challenge I was looking for. It's why I became an educator, to help put kids, especially teenagers, on a good path in life. And that's what I tried to do. I taught my students that if they worked hard and accepted responsibility for their actions, they would succeed that their race didn't define them, that they should respect the police, that there are only two sexes, that communism leads to misery. But in the last few years, they were hearing something different in their other classes, that their race was their destiny, that the police were out to get them, that their sexual identity is a personal choice, that socialism is compassionate, communism isn't so bad, and capitalism is cruel. Many of my students, especially the ones who had recently come to America, rejected these depressing lessons. They knew what they had fled. They wanted to embrace their new country and its values. But other students completely bought into it. I needed to know why. So I dove into the school's ethnic studies curriculum, the source of so many toxic ideas. I found classroom activities such as a privilege quiz, where students would compare and contrast their gender, race, class, and sexual orientation with those of their classmates. I found another exercise, which involved conducting a mock trial to charge various persons implicated in genocide against Native Californians in order to create a social justice counter-narrative. None of this should be surprising because the guiding principle of the curriculum was to critique white supremacy, racism, anti-blackness, patriarchy, capitalism, and other forms of power and oppression. And in case you think this is just one school, passing an ethnic studies class will soon be mandatory for high school graduation throughout the state of California, and it doesn't stop at students. Teachers who reject these radical ideas, especially teachers with the wrong skin color, risk being labeled racist or white supremacist, putting their jobs and careers on the line. In June 2020, I addressed the Salinas School Board. I told them that allowing critical race theory and Black Lives Matter indoctrination in the classroom is unbalanced, too political, and will only do harm. In response, the board president, a professor of ethnic studies at a local college, called me anti-people of color. I am people of color. I'm half Jamaican. In fact, before the board meeting, the district had sent me a gift just for being Black, a mask bearing the message, Black Educators Matter, an I Love Being Black sticker, and an African greeting that acknowledged the God in me. An obsession with race and gender has taken root in our educational system. It's the weed that's rapidly overtaking the garden. What can we do to get rid of it? 
First, advocate for academic transparency. Demand that your school district's lessons and materials be made accessible online so you can see what your child is being taught. That may not protect you from an individual woke teacher, principal, or school board, but it will make them all think twice before adding radical material into the curriculum. Second, be vocal. Express your concerns. Pay attention. If you come across lessons you don't like, make your dissatisfaction known. Let the teacher know, let the principal know, and if necessary, let the school board know. Speaking of school boards, consider getting on one yourself. This is a time for action. Third, take an active role in your child's education. Don't send your kids to public school and expect everything to turn out fine. Supplement their studies with lessons that counter the indoctrination they might be getting in school. Look into other options, such as private or charter schools that share your values. Or, if you can do it, homeschool. It's easier than you think. I will always be an educator. I don't think there's a more important job. My goals as a teacher are the same as they were 15 years ago. It's the goals of the public educational system that have changed. That's why I can no longer be a part of it. I'm Kali Fontania, founder of Exodus Institute for Prager University. In a 2016 episode of the science fiction series Black Mirror, a young woman named Lizzie lives in a world where people rate every interaction they have with another person. Think of rating a restaurant on TripAdvisor, except in this scenario, they are rating you. In this dystopian scenario, Lizzie obsesses about improving her rating. Whatever she says and does could make or break her future from the cost of her rent to the quality of her health care. Inevitably, this leads people to associate with those who have a higher rating and disassociate with those who have a lower one. Turns out that Lizzie isn't very good at navigating this system. By the conclusion of the episode, well, let's just say it doesn't end well for her. Black Mirror is a fiction, but the society it paints is becoming a reality in the People's Republic of China. You may have heard of it. It's called the social credit system. By all indications, it's the future of that country. If we are not too careful, it may be our future here. I'm drawing this to your attention because I left China to get away from the all-seeing eye of the Chinese government. I fled to the West in search of freedom. I found it. But now I'm seeing troubling signs that remind me of what I left behind. The loss of freedom doesn't happen overnight. The Chinese social credit system has been decades in the making. It was okay at first. These things always are. Throughout the 1990s, Chinese banks developed financial credit rating programs like those we have in America to increase lending in rural areas. So far, so good. But the government officials soon realized that similar programs could be set up to gather other information about the behavior of its citizens. By 2014, new technology allowed the state to monitor what people said, did, bought, read, and searched on the internet. Why? Because more data equals more control. That year, the State Council, China's highest administrative body, issued a blueprint of phase one of the social credit system, 
The central government then established pilot programs in 43 cities across the country. In one of these cities, Rongcheng, local officials labeled certain behaviors as either acceptable or unacceptable. Every adult was assigned 1,000 social credit points. They gained a lost point depending on how well their public and private lives conformed to government standards. Buying diapers was fine. You are taking care of your family. Playing video games questionable because the state says it has a sign of laziness. And discussing religion or grumbling about state policy. Unacceptable. Lose too many points and you might miss out on privileges like bank loans, faster internet, and plane tickets. Big companies such as Alibaba work with the government to make the system viable. Imagine the government knows and judge what you buy on Amazon and you get the idea. It's assumed that in the near future, the system will be mandated for all Chinese citizens. Already many people have been enrolled without their knowledge. Some in China think that social credit system promotes good behavior, addressing everything from crime to bad driving and financial delinquency. But the system doesn't stop there. It hasn't taken Chinese authorities long to draw up massive blacklists for those deemed unacceptable. According to The Guardian in England, there are 23 million Chinese on those lists, and the number is growing. One of them, Liu Hu, is a journalist who published articles exposing government corruption and censorship. The system banned him from flying, traveling on a train, buying property, and taking out loans without any due process. The Muslim Uyghurs of Xinjiang have seen even worse. Many have been sent to re-education camps for unacceptable behavior. With examples like these, it isn't hard to envision a time when loyalty to the Chinese government will determine all aspects of its citizens' lives where they live, where they work, and where their kids go to school. Everything we see in China, we are starting to see here in the West. Australia, Austria, and even the US have imposed or attempted to impose mandatory COVID-19 vaccinations. Government officials openly pressure banks not to give loans to disfavored business like oil companies. Parents who protest what their kids are learning in government schools are labeled domestic terrorists. Lacey's experience is already becoming a reality for almost a fifth of the world's population. It didn't end well for her. If we are not vigilant, it won't end well for us. I'm Pei Li for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU video free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation. You can learn a lot about basic economics from great quotes. Here are seven. Number one, capitalism is a system that begins not with taking, but with giving to others. George Gilder. This sounds counterintuitive, but Gilder is right. The underlying motivation of the entrepreneur is to satisfy not his need, but his customers. That's his only path to success and profitability. And once profitable, the entrepreneur invariably puts his new capital to work, expanding his business, which in turn creates better products, more jobs, and more wealth 
for more people. Number two, nothing contributes so much to the prosperity and happiness of a country as high profits. David Ricardo. To judge profits achieved in a free economy without understanding what they mean to the nation at large is a failure to understand economics. Countries where citizens are generating healthy profits by their individual efforts are countries with a higher tax base, higher research and development, better public services, more robust charity and philanthropy, and ultimately, greater happiness and quality of life. Number three, everyone wants to live at the expense of the state. They forget that the state lives at the expense of everyone. Friedrich Bastiat. Our conversations about government spending would be so dramatically different if we first realized that the government has no money to spend, that it does not first take from someone else, whether it be confiscation, taxation, or debt, future confiscation. Government spending, legitimate to the extent that it funds the necessities of government, is always an extraction of wealth from the private sector. Government needs revenues to function. Everyone agrees on that. But beyond a certain point, who will spend the money more effectively? Bureaucrats or the people who work to earn it? Number four, differences in habits and attitudes are differences in human capital just as much as differences in knowledge and skills. And such differences create differences in economic outcomes. Thomas Sowell. No attempt to manufacture an equal economic outcome can ever succeed. This quote explains why. Differences among people, such as their habits, abilities, attitudes, and goals, always lead to inequality. No matter how hard governments may try, they can't force people to be the same. This is called reality. Number five, if history could teach us anything, it would be that private property is inextricably linked with civilization. Ludwig von Mises. Without property rights, freedom can't exist. If individuals don't have control over their property, then the state does. If the state owns your property, the state owns you. One of the notable achievements of the left has been to correlate private property with greed. This often puts defenders of private property on their heels. It shouldn't. Owning property gives people dignity, and people who own property will be far better stewards of that property than any disinterested third party. All lovers of freedom should be staunch defenders of private property. Without it, a productive and free society is impossible. Number six, the free market is not a system. It is not something that Washington implements. It does not exist in any legislation, law, bill, regulation, or book. It is what you get when people act on their own, entirely without central direction and with their own property. Jeffrey Tucker. Nobody invented capitalism. It's what free people do naturally, exchange goods and services for their own benefit. Before there are interventions, regulations, stipulations, and controls, there are humans acting, associating, cooperating, building, and creating. That economic freedom is what we call capitalism. When people are free to do what they want within the bounds of the law, of course, they do their best work. Simple and wonderful as that. Number seven, under capitalism, man oppresses man, but under socialism, it's the other way around. Russ Roberts. 
Human beings are flawed creatures. They will make bad choices no matter what kind of economy they're operating in. The left thinks we can avoid the dark side of human nature if we just get rid of capitalism. But all the left does is replace one flawed actor, the individual, with another flawed but more powerful actor, government bureaucracy at best and a totalitarian monster at worst. Bottom line, if you want to live a productive, fulfilling, and meaningful life, the free market is your best chance. Really, it's your only chance. I'm David Bonson, author of There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation. I am the fallen soldier, sailor, airman, and marine. Remember me. I am the one that held the line. Sometimes I volunteered. Sometimes I went because I was told to go. But when the nation called, I answered. In World War I, I marched on the Marne and held the line at Bella Wood. The war to end all wars, they called it. I just called it hell. In World War II, I fought everywhere. The beaches of Normandy, the Battle of the Bulge, the hell of Guadalcanal. I stood against tyranny and kept darkness from consuming the world. In Korea, I landed in Incheon and broke out of the chosen reservoir. They called it the Forgotten War, but I never forgot. In Vietnam, I fought in the Mekong Delta, at Khe Sanh and Hamburger Hill. Some say my country wavered, but I did not waver. I have fought in Iraq and Afghanistan, in Baghdad, Fallujah, and Ramadi, in Kunar, Helmand, and Kandahar. It was me that patrolled up the mountains or across the desert or through the streets. It was me that suffered in merciless heat and bitter cold. It was me that went out night after night to confront our nation's enemies and confront evil face to face. I did not waver and I did not hesitate. I, the soldier, sailor, airman, or marine, I stood my ground and sacrificed my life, my future, my hopes, my dreams. I sacrificed everything for you. This Memorial Day, remember me, the fallen warrior. And remember me not for my sake, but for yours. Remember what I sacrificed so you can truly appreciate the incredible treasures you have. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. You have the joys of life, the joys that I gave up so that you can relish in them. A cool wind in the air, the gentle spring grass on your bare feet, warm summer sun on your face, family, friends, and freedom.
never forget where it all came from. It came from sacrifice, the supreme sacrifice. Live a life that honors us, the fallen heroes. Remember us and make every day Memorial Day. <laughs>